week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1997, Bjarne Rees won the Amstel Gold Race. Rees, as most cyclists tend to do, began life as a domestique. Most notably, he was one of Laurent Fignon's teammates in the 1989 Tour de France. At a relatively heavy 76 kilograms, Rees didn't seem to have the physique of a potential tour winner and looked destined for a life sentence as a domestique. But in 1992, he began working with Dr. Luigi Ciccini. Steadily, Rees' results at the Tour de France began to improve. Starting in 1993, he came 5th, then 14th, then 3rd, and eventually, in 1996, he won it. Ciccini said this about Rees shortly after he won the Tour in 1996. I remember the Isla 2000 stage in 93, when Rees was at the front with Yaskula and Rominger and Indurain. He phoned me that evening and said, I turned around and saw Rominger and Indurain and thought, what the hell am I doing here? I thought he could do well in the classics, but I would be lying if I said I thought he could win the Tour. Once he had come third in 95, that was different, but before that, he was the only one who believed he could do it. Rees won the Tour in 95 with two all-out solo attacks, one on the stage to Sestriere and one on the stage to Hotacam. He did exactly the same thing to win the Amstel Gold Race in 1997, and in doing so, he won a classic while he was still the reigning Tour de France champion. To date, he is still the last rider to have achieved this feat. Welcome to episode 8 of This Week in Cycling History. My name's John Galloway, and I'm here with my colleague... Killian Kelly. Well, that's Amstel Gold this last weekend, um, and you talked about that with Bjarne Arise's performance in 1997. And it's a race which a lot of people don't think is a proper classic still, because it's only been going since, you know, the 60s or whatever. But it's it's one of my favourites, and I, I remember that race one very, very well indeed. Well, I, I suppose we must um, footnote any talk about Bjarne Reese with the fact that he, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, he, he did um, admit to using EPO to, to win that Tour de France and presumably to, to win that Amstel Gold race as well. So... Uh, you know, as impressive as those rides were, that he, he he made these big attacks and you know just took on the whole peloton and beat them single-handedly. It, it is uh, it's difficult to look back on them and and uh, you know they they weren't clean performances. No, so, uh, no, they definitely weren't. I mean, and we could have the argument a lot about whether it was a level playing field and you know whether everybody was doing it and that kind of thing. Um, I think for me, what I remember about that is. It's just the extravagance of the victory. You know, he attacked a long way out. And I also remember it because, you know, we're all focused on power now and power meters and SRMs and all that kind of thing. And I think it was the first race I saw where they actually published his SRM file for the whole race. And as a a kind of gear and tech junkie, that was a big thing for me. But Reese went from... I think he, for me, is the the perfect example of the donkey turning into a racehorse because he went from a domestique to to possibly the most dominant tour winner we've seen until until Armstrong came along. Um, yeah, it, it's funny you say the donkey racehorse thing because um, a couple of the quotes I, I got from that piece um, were from an old ep- uh, episode. I was going to say issue of uh, Cycle Sport magazine and. Um, Luigi Ciaccini did, did an interview with William Fotheringham and, and the last line of the article is um, the trainer is important but no one can turn a donkey into a racehorse. Um, it, you know, I, as far as I know, I don't think Luigi Ciaccini was ever um, charged with any any doping practices or anything but like he was one of these disciples of, of Conconi and he was a, a peer of Michele Ferrari and, you know... <laughs> If you look at it, uh, at his um, 
students, if you like, like Reese. Uh, you know, I mean, I I really don't think it's it's too much of a stretch to to, to presume that he he was involved in in, in that somehow. You know, it's funny actually because I mean I've talked this week. Um quite openly and quite angrily on Twitter and, and on the last episode of the Velocast that we can't just assume that every performance is, is, is doped because it's extravagantly good and I'm talking there particularly about Boonin and Roubaix but why we can be open about this and talk about the, the shadow cast and Cicini and Reese is that Reese is one of the few people who've come clean and you know he's he's a a child of that whole time and I'm thinking particularly of the famous uh, Flesh Wallone which happens tomorrow as we're recording you know, yeah. on Tuesday evening here where the entire Gavis team just disappeared off the front three of them was it Furlan, Berzin and Argentan Ar- yeah. and for many people that's the, kind of, that's the start of the EPO era although it had been used before you know, that's the one where it just started taking the piss yeah, I, I guess this whole the, the whole issue of EPO is kind of fresh in my mind as well recently because I'm in the middle of David Miller's book. I don't know whether you've read that. Uh, well, he certainly got Frank Vandenbroek's mum and dad in a, a bit of a stooshy, hasn't he? Yeah, I saw that today. Yeah, I, that's kind of I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. I, I find that hard to believe. Obviously, they're trying to protect their memory of their lost son, but uh, I mean, I, I don't see any reason why David Miller would have to lie about those sorts of things. No. But um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Like in uh, in the Miller book, a, a few things stood out to me that uh, you know he was so amazed uh, the first time he, he saw Vandenbroek go up the um, the the climb, which name the name of which escapes me now in Liège, but in Liège, Côte de Saint Nicolas, I think, is the one, or because yeah. that's the one where Vandenbroek attacked when he won when he he got yeah. the break that he won it, and I don't think I've ever seen a more explosive display of climbing as uh, as we saw that day. Yeah, I, I know David Miller was out training the year afterwards for his, I think it might have been his debut in the Age Best on the Age, and the guys who he was training with said, you know, do, do you know Vandenbroek went up this last year in the big ring, and Miller was kind of left in disbelief. Uh, but I suppose the other thing I, I was taken from the book, and I took very much from uh, Paul Kimmage's lengthy interview with Floyd Landis um, all those months ago when Landis came clean, that... Uh, you know, it's very much a, a bit by bit and stage by stage mental journey that these guys go through to the point at which they take EPO. And I've just finished the chapter now in Miller's book where uh, he has actually injected himself with, or has been injected with EPO for the first time. And just the way it's described, it's just it's left as, as no big deal. And he said mentally, mentally for him, it was much more of a big deal taking an injection full of vitamins and minerals. Uh, you know, the act of taking an injection for the first time was much more devastating mentally than just filling the, the syringe with something different, which just happened to be illegal this time. And 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 the whole journey that these guys go through—it's very—it's not—it's um, not as black and white and as evil and evil versus good as we we'd like to make out as fans. You know, um, I, I guess it's, what I'm trying to say is it's very difficult to um, understand the pressures and the mental uh, state that these guys end up in to do this. Yeah, so, uh, I completely agree, and I've never been part of the witch hunt, I think, where you know, instantly the rider turns into the evil baddie in the, you know, in the plot. These are just people trying to make a living, often people from a relatively poor background, even now, you know, that we're in the 21st century. Yeah. And if somebody said to me, 
you know, take this stuff you can feed your family and set up your future. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'd have the strength to turn it down. Yeah, I'd be the same as I'm sure many others. But maybe going back to the racing, um, the, the, I thought it was interesting that uh, Rana Reese was the last guy to win a classic as the Tour champion. Or, you know, maybe it's not so surprising because um, Armstrong took over and, and never really gave the classics. Although he did, he did give Amstel Gold his attention, uh, to be fair. For the first few years he was winning the Tour, uh, I think he came second in Amstel Gold a couple of times. Yeah, I mean, um, I remember, but, uh, I remember Bogart beating him, and he looked absolutely gutted when Bogart crossed the line first. Yeah, yeah, he. I think he used Amstel Gold very much as a stepping stone to, to judge his form, and he really, really tried to win that race, um, at, at least until 2003 or thereabouts. But um, I like, I, I just, I, I suppose Andy Schleck obviously won Liège by Stanley Age and has, in Bunniers, won the Tour <laughs> after it. But uh, I mean, obviously that wasn't in the same year. I'm, I'm not sure there's any rider really capable of of winning the tour and uh, and and following it up with a classic. Obviously, maybe Andy Schleck could could do it again. But uh, I, I I don't know Valverde maybe. <laughs> well, the thing is, I think it's what we've talked about before. I think it's a sign of the increasing specialisation of the sport. You know, it's not like Merckx who would go out and try and win everything. Now that you know, the guys are targeting a particular race so hard. And the peak of their form has to be so high to compete, you know, against peers who are also perfectly prepared for that race that they can't afford to, you know, to burn matches and squander form in races that are less important for their overall scheme. So I, I think it'll be a long time until we see the likes of Fignon winning, you know, Milan San Remo or or Bjarne Ries with this performance in the Amstel Gold. Anyway, uh, we'll move on to, I think, another story about the Amstel Gold, but from a slightly earlier period. In 1977... Jan Raas won the Amstel Gold Race. Raas started his professional career in 1975 with the TI Rally Team managed by Peter Post. But with so many other leaders in the team like Henny Kuiper, Jerry Kniedemann and Diedrich Thoreau, Raas left in 1977 to pursue his own goals with the Freesol Team. The move for Raas proved to be an immediate success as he won his first classic he raced with the team, the 1977 Milan San Remo. So coming into Amstel Gold later in 1977, Raas was a marked man. He proved that Milan San Remo was no fluke and made it into the race-winning move along with two other riders. As it happened, there were his two former teammates, Kuiper and Kniedemann. For the last few kilometres of that Amstel Gold edition, Kuiper and Kniedemann took turns to attack their former teammate, but each time, Ras diligently chased them down and kept the Dutch trio together. Ras then proved he still had plenty of strength left, as the two TI rally men could not make their numeric advantage count, and Ras crossed the line to win his second classic of the year. He is the last Dutch road race champion to win the Amstel Gold Race, and 1977 was the first of four victories in a row for Ras at Amstel Gold. This hot streak makes Ras the only rider apart from Fausto Coppi, who has won a classic four years in a row. Now that was about Jan Ras, uh, who I think has a good argument along with Andre Greipel as being one of the least attractive men ever to, to ride a bicycle. Um, <laughs> for me though, that period... And I mean, everybody's different. There are people. There are people for whom you know the current Cervelo will be the iconic bike of a period, or you know the Trek OCLVs that Armstrong rode. But for me, the bike that defines the interest that uh, when I really started to get excited about cycling gear was that TI Rally uh, black and red machine. That's I'd pay a good amount of money for a proper pro version of one of them just now. <laughs> I'm old, you know, what can I say? Yeah, I won't argue with you on that one. 
Um, Rass actually won quite a lot of other stuff, didn't he? I mean, he won the, the Tour of Flanders, he won the Dutch Championship, he won the Hetvolk, etc., etc. But this was a race that was literally made for him. Um, and, I mean, you saying that the only other rider was Fausto Coppi in Lombardy shows that it's it's an achievement for him. That was a, a classic run in a race that, I mean, Holland has taken to his heart. So it made him a national a national hero. Yeah, yeah, and as well, I mentioned he he won it with the Dutch champions jersey as well, which made him even more of a national hero. But uh, I mean, to win any race four years in a row, even twice in a row, um, t- takes some doing. Like, like having won it the previous year, you're obviously going to be a marked man, and uh, to, you know everybody knows you're capable of doing it. And, and to do it four times in a row is is uh, really really quite an achievement. And and the first time he did that, like. That that was really, um, I suppose, it was a golden era for the Dutch racers. I mean, there, there was that trio up front, Jerry Kniedman and Henny Kuyper and Rass. I mean, they were all world champion um, at one stage or another. And uh, that, around the same time, Joop Zudemelk was, was doing well on the tour and he eventually won it in 1980. And I, uh, I'm just off the top of my head and put myself on the spot here. I don't think another, I think only maybe one other Dutch rider has finished on the tour podium since. Maybe that was Eric Breukink. Yep. But, uh, you know, they they, um, they they haven't really had those glory days um, since as such a, um, a a prominent cycling nation traditionally. You know, that that was really, I suppose, their, their golden period. Um, and it really, uh, having those three riders um, fight it out for the Amstel Gold win, I suppose maybe help put Amstel Gold on the map. Um, the the idea of, of of a cycling classic is always, I suppose, it's slightly subjective. Um, I th- I think everybody would agree that the five monuments are all classics, but after that, the definition is is loose. And um, Amstel Gold has has is, I mean, it's quite a, a young race, um, and and it's really, I suppose, it's it's the youngest of the of what is now considered a classic. I mean, it's even weaselled its way into these are this trio of Ardennes races where really. When the Ardennes races started, there was only the two. There was just Liege, Bastogne, Liege, and Flesch Wallonne. There was even a classification uh, split across the two races, and you could, you know, the 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 rider who finished in the top in, in both of those combined won this extra competition. And uh, you know, it's only recently that the Amstel Gold has been lumped in with these other two races. So I suppose it really um, it throws up the question of uh, prestige and what makes a race prestigious, and and this whole. Uh, attempt by the UCI to throw prestige on the fans by lobbing the Tour of Beijing into the into the World Tour and the Tour Down Under. Um, like I really, I really don't think it, it, it works. These things kind of have to be organic, and they have to take a lot of time. I mean, really, when you, when you look at it, like what's the difference between Liège, Bastogne, Liège, and some small race like oh, we had one at the weekend there, the Zelic Galmar. And you know how many people have heard of that? But like, I, I mean. I suppose a better comparison would be what's the difference between Zelik Almarden and the Tour of Flanders. I mean, the Zelik Almarden race went up the more the more Van Gerardsbergen twice, went yeah. up the Bosworth six times. You know, people were lamenting that those climbs weren't in the Tour of Flanders. And here's a race on the weekend nobody ever talks about. But the only reason the Tour of Flanders is more prestigious is really because the Tour of Flanders is more prestigious. It's it's just <laughs> it's just it's just become that way. But it's taken years to become that way. It, you can't just throw money at it. No, you can't. I mean, it, it, it's good to be organic, and it, I think it all comes down to passion. I mean, I've, one of the reasons I'm still going to one of my favourites is I've been there, I think, three times now. And my first memory of it is, is standing in the Cowburg 
with, you know, a lovely glass of, well, actually a fairly shitty glass of Amstel beer that somebody had served me from uh, essentially a petrol pump on their back. And across from me are probably at least four, but I think probably eight big, hairy, burly Dutchmen dressed entirely in orange, including oranged up with their faces, but dressed as milkmaids with clogs on. And they were just mental. And Falkenberg as a whole was full of Dutch people going mental. So there's the passion... There's the, the the sense of location because I mean the Amstel Gold is particularly focused around the Limburg region, um, but I think the passion's the biggest thing. You know the, the Flandrians go mad for the Tour of Flanders, Paris Roubaix. You get people standing in the most insignificant section of cobbles, um, and that comes from sense of locale, sense of history. So the same races run across, not the same course, but roughly the same area for for a number of years, and yeah. the, the nation. And that's where I'm talking about with Amstel, with the Dutch folk, are just just aroused and excited by it. And you can't manufacture that. You know, you can't just drop it in and say three men and a dog and a policeman watching a race in China is a classic. It has to grow by itself. You can't you can't just define the name. It has to earn it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And it, the, your description of the Dutch fans there really bodes well for the for the World Championships in in uh, later on in the year. Oh, I can that. <laughs> <laughs> so something else to say as well about the Ireland Classic is that um, I, I, you know at the moment they're all uphill finishes, and uh, I, I know um, I, I, obviously I read the magazines a lot. I know Lionel Bernie has a gripe, well maybe not a gripe, but he he kind of laments the fact that uh, all three finish on a on a summit or not a summit, but an uphill climb, and and that they're, they're really they're they're quite similar. And I suppose Philip Gilbert was classic case in point last year. I mean he just. Pretty much did the same thing to win all of them. Liege best on Liege was quite slightly different in that he had the selection him at the end. Yeah. But I mean, he, he all it proved was that he was the strongest rider going up a hill at the end of a race. Um, you know, and, and these races weren't always like that. Like Amstel Gold has only been uh, on an uphill finish since 2003. And yeah, I mean, Reese's power file that we were talking about earlier essentially showed a, a flat to roll in time trial at the finish. Yeah, and, and the same was true of Liege Bastan Liege until 1992. And Sean Kelly won that race twice in the 80s. And, you know, he, he was never the best at going uphill. He, he was good, but he was never the best. So, I mean, if, if Liege Bastan Liege finished on top of a hill in those days, he probably wouldn't have won it twice. The fact that it, 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 there was a slight downhill and then a flat to the finish um, allowed him to, to win the way he, he usually did, which was in a, a bit of a sprint. And, and maybe that, that, I mean, that's definitely what makes Milan San Remo so intriguing is that you have this climb before the end and there is the the suspense of whether the climber will get to the top and hang on to the finish or will it regroup, will the sprinter get there? And it adds just so much. Like if Milan San Remo ended on the top of the Poggio, it, it, it would be definitely for the worse, I think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to, to mix up the, these finishes of these races would be an idea, you know, one year uphill, one year on the flat, I mean, why not? The, the way they are now, uh, it's it's kind. It's it depends on the race, obviously, but um, they 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 could change it up for the better. I think. See, I I kind of vaguely agree, but mostly disagree with that, which is is good because it gives us something to talk about. Um, <laughs> for me, these races just getting to that final uphill, and the cowboy isn't that long. You know, I mean, it, it it's it's a shortish climb, although it's a very decisive one. You have to ha- you have to be a complete bike rider. 
because all of these races that we're talking about demand superb descending, great bike handling on narrow, crappy roads. Um, so to get to the finish, maybe you've earned you know the the luxury of that uphill finish that's decisive. So um, who knows? I mean, I, I'm still with the uphill finish was still dull this year for me. So. Yeah, true, true. It's a, it's a difficult one. Shall we move on to the last bit where we're talking about, um, having talked about Amstel twice, we're going to move on to Flesh Wallon. In the year 2000, Chris Boardman attacked after only 18 kilometres in Flesh Wallon. Boardman was in his final year as a cyclist, and although he had had a stellar career filled with yellow and rainbow jerseys, he had never shown much pedigree in the spring classics. Therefore, it was a surprise to see him off the front of the race so early in Flesh Wallon. The only other rider who went with him was the Lithuanian Raymondos Rumzas. Boardman seemed uber-focused and willing to do the majority of the work himself, showing little or no interest in seeking help from Rumzas to build up a lead. On the second ascent of the Moor de Huy, with just 91 kilometres to the finish, the pair had a massive gap of 12 minutes, and with 60k to go, they still had 7 minutes. But with 25 kilometres left to the finish, Boardman's kamikaze grab for victory was eventually foiled as the bunch caught them, led by Team Telecom, who were riding for Alexander Vinokurov, and Team Liquigas, who were riding for David Rebelan. The race was eventually won by Francesco Casagrande, as Boardman ended up in 39th place, almost a minute and a half back. But having come quite close to making it to the finish, Boardman did not seem downhearted whatsoever after the race. Only later, it would be revealed that the whole exercise was merely preparation for Boardman's upcoming attempt to beat Eddie Merckx's World Hour record. The numbers that Boardman produced during that escape helped him hone the preparation that was required to produce the right numbers that would knock Merckx off his perch. It worked. Boardman attacked the record in Manchester in October of 2000 and beat Merckx's record by the incredibly fine margin of just 10 metres. I actually remember that very well because um, at the time, and I think it was probably David Duffield and it might have been Sean Kelly before he was intelligible to the general English-speaking public. Um, (laughs) And everybody was going, why is Boardman doing all the work? Why is Boardman doing all the work? And it was only afterwards that we discovered why. And, you know, good on him. It's just a training race. I I suppose maybe the, um, the, the point could be made that he was being disrespectful to the classic of, of you know the, the the race that was in it that he he was uh he was focused on a completely other goal and and you know there was a classic to be won and he just didn't care and he was doing his own thing i mean like i, I don't know what you think about that well I, I mean i think that's that's perfectly indicative of what boardman and peter Keane brought to the thing which was you know and brailsford's doing the same thing now with sky which is is leading to to similar debates is that as long as they got the goal that they were focused on at the end, then everything else was just a training ride. And for Boardman, I remember the huge excitement watching him beat Merckx's record by 10 metres. So the end justified the means. And the other thing is, we had the same thing on Sunday in in Amstel, where Oscar Freire attacked off the front with, you know, being honest, very little chance of success. But what he was doing was using Amstel, which is arguably more prestigious than Flesh Wallone these days, as preparation for the world when it comes to Valkenburg. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose. I mean, it is a a, a quirk of the sport that uh, riders are focused on on different goals at different times. You know, to, to make a parallel with football, like all the players on the pitch are trying to win the match that they're playing in at that time. <laughs> you know, they, they have to go and win other matches later on, but at, while they're on the pitch, they're trying to win this match. Whereas with cycling, um, 
what, what makes it so intriguing and another layer of topic of, of debate is that there there are races where some of the riders are trying to win and, and some of them some of them don't want to be there at all and and like Boardman and Frere some of them are uh, pre- preparing for future goals and uh, it, it's become more and more of a gripe I suppose with, with fans that uh, riders aren't trying to win all the time and that they do have one or two or rarely three specific goals in the season that, that they want to get to so uh, I, I mean I suppose obviously on this occasion the end justified the means and that he, he, he did what he had to do to beat the hour record um, I, I, I just I don't know I, I, I would wonder what the other teams in Fleshwood on that year uh, would have thought of Boardman afterwards making him making them chase him down for so long and so hard <laughs> It's interesting actually and we'll save the hour record for, for another one because I've, I've long declared my uh, my intention to do a, a special this week in cycling history based on the air. but what this I mean the flip side of what I just said about it's a training race so that's fair enough is that it shows us what Boardman might have done you know had he focused on something other than the controllable aspects of the track or you know prologues or time trials yeah, um, yeah. and I remember I mean this is, this is like you this is off the top of my head with no prep and from the, the dark and dim recesses of my memory I seem to remember Peter Keenan Boardman analysing Zabel's power files and you know using that as a basis for Boardman's training because you know they had an inkling he might make a decent one day rider and this might have been the genesis of that where he was away you know and, and within certainly a believable gap for success but it just proves that numbers aren't everything. You can look at Zabel's numbers, but that doesn't mean that you can win Milan-San Remo. Ultimately, it, it also comes down to heart and intelligence. Yeah, and I suppose that this is the, the same debate that gets had with Bradley Wiggins' approach to races recently. We talked about it a few weeks ago with um, you know, it, the way he describes time-trialing around these stage races like Paris-Nice and the Dauphiné. I mean, he's winning them, so it's hard to argue. But uh, I, I, to, one, one of the the things that I find most annoying about Bradley Wiggins is just his general attitude after he he, he, he achieves these things. And I suppose Chris Boardman, um, from a from a numbers and 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 power output point of view, was no different. I mean, he was all about the numbers as well. But he's just Boardman has always come across as much more affable and and uh, likable. And uh, whereas there's no real. D- difference in their approaches to the sport their approaches to uh, the media are are very different I think and it, it does um, does make a difference to the way fans get on board with uh, with what they're trying to do. I think uh, my favourite Boardman story when I was at the Edinburgh Bicycle Co-op we, uh, we, we bought up a bit of the block uh, which we needed to, to make the shop an entire block if you see what I mean, Without, we had a plumber in the middle so you had a bike shop, a plumber and then a bike shop uh, and we bought the plumber just to make it one massive bike shop, and we we engaged Boardman Services to come and come and open the shop. Um, and <laughs> he brought his gold medal uh, and gave it to a relative of a member of staff who put it down somewhere. At which point Boardman picked it up, put it in his pocket, and then said, "So where's my gold medal?" Uh, and everybody was crapping themselves for about ten minutes, thinking we'd lost the uh, the pursuit gold from Barcelona. Uh, <laughs> and he, he he just made a a huge joke of it, and was a lovely bloke for the whole day. Completely accessible, very engaging, 
and just a decent bloke. And that's the difference. I mean, Bradley is... Well, it's not to say that... I mean, I don't know what Bradley Wiggins is like in private. I mean, he could be the nicest guy in the world. But just when he's, when he's doing interviews and, and when he's in, in front of the media, he, he, he doesn't... I don't think he comes across very well. But, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying... He, I'm not suggesting he's like that all the time. But no, you know. I, I, th- I, think, I think the measure of the man... Not the measure of the man, but the nature of the man comes through in the interviews. I mean, the boardman that comes across in interviews is entirely consistent with the boardman that you know we spent half a day with. Yeah. Um, and Wiggins, he seems, he seems spiky. He seems funny. He seems intelligent. But I think what we see in the press is pretty much what you get with Wiggins, and maybe that's why he's moving towards being, you know, far more of a winner because he's got that killer instinct. And you know, yeah, maybe if, if he wins the tour in uh, in July. We'll all go, you know, fair dues, Brad. Yeah, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not completely ridiculous notion. Anyway, let's uh, let's finish up because you, both you and I are, are pretty much dead on our feet. Um, people who followed me on Twitter will know I'm, I'm coming off the back of two twelve-hour days, and I mean, I think I, I just about had to wake you up like Rumpelstiltskin to finish this podcast tonight. Um, so people can find us and the Irish Peloton on Twitter for you and Sofa Boy for me please please leave um, a comment on iTunes a lot of people have and we're really grateful for that but it helps people find the show and we'll be back I would think probably on Sunday morning if we can get together with some some stuff about uh, Liège, Baston, Liège in the meanwhile enjoy Flesh Balloon tomorrow and we'll see you next week